This is a Washington Post Live podcast from the Global Women's Summit with presenting sponsor Boston Consulting Group, a strategic partner to government and business leaders. You're listening to conversations from Washington Post Live's 2022 Global Women's Summit, featuring leaders and trailblazers from around the world. Hi, I'm Sally Quinn, a Washington Post author and writer, and my guests today are here to talk about caregiving and how it's shifted since the pandemic. We have Representative Lauren Underwood, who has championed legislation around caregiving on the Hill. Lauren is a threefer, <laughs> the first woman the first person of color and the first millennial to represent her community in Congress. Thank you. And she is also the youngest African American woman to serve in the House. Yes. Because mm. you're you. really a forfer. Yeah. <laughs> Barbara Ebel is a caregiver to a daughter with autism and a mother with Alzheimer's. And she is here today with her hair combed and both shoes on the right foot <laughs> and well turned out, which is amazing already. And she has a job. Welcome, Thank Barbara. You. Tim Shriver is the chair of Special Olympics and an advocate for people with intellectual disabilities. And he was also my choice for president in 2016. <laughs> That's not a joke. But <laughs> so thank you so much for joining me here today. Um, you may wonder why I'm moderating this panel um, on caregiving. Uh, it's because my son Quinn, who is now 40, was born with a hole in his heart and learning disabilities. And he has been in and out of special uh, hospitals and special schools much of his life. My mother was a stroke victim who was partially paralyzed and cognitively impaired for 12 years. My father was sick most of that time. And my late husband, Ben Bradley, was diagnosed with Alzheimer's and for his last two years of his life required constant caretaking. And not only that, my beloved dog, Sparky, died of cancer during that time. Wow. And I was the primary caregiver, caregiver for all of them. And so I really get it. Um, Barbara, uh, you represent the sandwich generation. You have a daughter with autism mm -hmm. and a mother with Alzheimer's. And you all live under the same roof. So. And we were talking about this in the green room. Uh, we did. How do you do it? Uh, because know. you also have a full-time job, and you're very successful at what you do. Mm -hmm. um, and I wonder if, if the pandemic has changed your life as a caregiver. But really, tell us how you do this, because most people couldn't. Thank you, Sally, for the question. I, it has been challenging, and um, uh, having to transition when the pandemic hit to all of us back in 2020, it was a life changing. Um, my daughter, which many of you know, and uh, if you know about the autism um, uh, in general, kids are very structured, so changes are not really uh, welcome uh, to many of our kids. So uh, all of a sudden we have to change from remote, uh, I mean from physical school to remote. And uh, my daughter was really not happy, and she was having some difficulty to basically be on the screen and be able to have um, and a lot of kids looking at her. So she got a little intimidated. We have to take time to be able to support her. Um, I was actually uh, yago between being on the screen for my own job and be able to do my own work and be able to support her. Um, as a result of these changes and, um, and being uh, uh, in remote learning uh, environment, she developed depression. So right now she's actually um, sort of like a regress emotionally. So she wants to just be in her room and uh, she feel that uh, COVID, and this is you know, literally what she said to me, COVID have destroyed her life. She's Be 17. And now, she's right? only yeah. 17. And, and the reason is because 
she was not casting off our kids were not casting to be able to be in this remote environment and that Jenny she was actually you know quite socially she likes to be with her friends and and she misses to play with her friends but all of a sudden, we have to be locked up for a year and a half. But you have your mother at the I same time. I did have my mother, and at the same time, I have to take care of my mother that had and Alzheimer's. We didn't have any caregiver during that time because we were afraid that if we were going to bring somebody to help me in the house, that that person could potentially, you know, have so you COVID. So you did both? I did both. And mm -hmm. uh, at the same time, I was working full time. And does your mother know who she, who you are? Does she? My mother, no, no she doesn't. No. She has a pretty severe Alzheimer's. And that, uh, and I was trying, I, I feel like I was going from one room to the other, <laughs> taking care of my daughter and my, and my mother. And, um, but I have to say that I was very... Um, lucky because I have a very supporting husband. Uh, he was actually helping me and in, in being with my daughter, um, helping her in, in the remote learning uh, environment. When I was, um, you know, in another room, um, basically doing my job um, with my work. So yes, it was it was challenging, but I I did a lot at the end, a lot of work in trying to speak to her and be able to understand that this is only going to be temporary and then that we're here to support her. And, uh, and I was able to also call all the people in the community. They were also helping us as well. So, so we were able to, to get through. Is everybody in your household on antidepressants? <laughs> well... Uh, that's a serious question. <laughs> well, you know... <laughs> I think um, sometimes I feel, well, you know, I feel like I'm a superwoman. <laughs> right, you are. And, uh, because a lot of times, a lot of times that I was wondering if I need to help myself because. Right. Yeah. You do need help. Yeah. Um, Sometimes the caregiver is the one who needs the most care. And I That's know so that because I've been there. And uh, I'm so sorry. So um, that's why I became um, an advocate, because a lot of times people don't look at the parents. And that, um, so I became uh, someone that uh, is going to be advocating for um, our parents, because sometimes we forgot that uh, we are human beings mm -hmm. and that we need that um, social support, uh, that community support, and uh, I do have it, but uh, I'm helping other parents. I have a lady that uh, she's actually um, is with my daughter. I mean, her son is with my daughter in, in, in the same school, uh, in classroom, and she came to me over the weekend to say, I'm struggling uh, because the school is really not you know, supporting my child uh, that has a disability and she doesn't have the means because sometimes we have to hire an attorney to be able to go through the litigation process to making sure that the school system is actually doing what is right for our kids. I'm not saying that the school is not, but sometimes there's some things that they're not executing. So, and I said, um, well, did you yeah. have the, you know, did you have the support from your family? And she said, yeah. no, so and I don't have the financial means. So yeah. I was able to connect her with some resources that is actually helping her to be able to, to get to the next stage. So that's why we have to fight for what is right for right. our kids and our parents, because if we don't take care of the parents, that they're actually, you know, like myself, that I get emotional here and it's okay to be emotional, and, uh, and to make sure that they're actually in a good place, how can they take care of their, their kids? Right. Well, so, Tim, Tim, you've been through this because um, your mother started special, Eunice Shriver started Special Olympics because her sister, Rosemary, had intellectual disabilities. Um, how did growing up with Rosemary affect you and your family in terms of caretaking? Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. It's an honor to, I'm not sure, I, I don't think I belong, honestly, on this panel, <laughs> not just because of the distinguished guests, but for uh, obvious other reasons, but I'm happy to be here. As the son of a powerful woman, <laughs> the brother of a powerful woman, the husband of a powerful woman, uh, so I'm going to try to channel their energy. My mom would always tell the story of her own mother 
in the 1920s and 30s, putting the phone down day after day and muttering the words, there's nothing for Rosemary, nothing, nothing. And her voice would trail off, nothing. No health care, no school, no childcare, no tutorials, no physical therapy. And it always reminded me of a quote I heard from a, a mom in our movement, in the Special Olympics movement. I wouldn't change my child for the world, but I would change the world for my child. I think that was the animating spirit that my mother had. Not that anything was wrong with her sister, but there was a lot wrong with the way her sister was being treated by the world. It animated her desire to help found the NICHD, founded really, founding energy, yes, President Kennedy and, and, the, and the leaders of Congress in those days, but I'm very proud that it's the only institute in the NIH named for a human being. It's called the Eunice Kennedy Shriver National Institute of Child Health and Human Development. So it animated my mom's whole life to change the course of history, not just for her own sister, but for those around her. Today, we made a lot of progress, and uh, uh, not enough, but we've made a lot. But we've got a long way to go. In, around the world, 80% uh, of children with intellectual disabilities never go to school, never. Not one grade, not one lunchbox, not one pencil case, not one walk to school, not one bus not one recess, not one birthday party their whole lives. So the, there is an almost criminal backdrop here. The, the largest caregiving institution in the world is schools. <coughs> 12, 13, some places six years, some places eight years, but in the United States, thank God, somewhere between 12 and 13 years of support for families in the help, helping in the raising of children. Uh, those uh, opportunities are denied to children around the world, and even here in the United States, we still have so much social isolation facing children with special needs, and as a result, the burden falls on their caregivers. Uh, you know, the only thing I think I can add concretely to this conversation is a plea for a change in values. It sounds so fundamental and so uh, abstract, but you know, we, we value competition, we value success, we value achievements, we value money, we value political power, we value all these things. It's fine, it's good, I, I do too. But unless we begin to equally value compassion and equally value relationships, this is one of the great lessons of, of the Special Olympics community. Uh, you come to an, a Special Olympics event, many of you may have been, and you know you're in a place that values relationship more than power. It's just obvious. Everybody gets it. And so caregivers, if you can call them that, coaches, volunteers, people of goodwill, flock for themselves, for their own health, for their own uh, spiritual strength, for their own emotional stability. Uh, you know, I just want to mention one thing. There's a company that's looking at this in the healthcare space. Uh, Representative uh, Underwood might be interested in this. It's a small company, but it is, what it does is it's Medicare approved to diagnose the supports needed for caregivers. Mm -hmm and provide uh, treatment and supports for the caregivers, they've already proven they can delay people going into nursing care by almost two years if you just support the caregivers. Huge savings to the government just by supporting caregivers. So I think there's a cultural challenge we're facing across all these walks of life uh, to remove some of the stigma associated with vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And to, in some ways, I dare say, celebrate. Uh, no one wants to have these tremendously challenging problems. But all of us, in some ways, are capable of responding much more joyfully and powerfully and successfully than we have valued in the past. And you know, maybe one little lesson in our movement is that caregiving can be an enormous source of joy if it's supported by the culture and the community. When it's isolating and painful, uh, it leads to a very difficult and often very damaging outcomes. Lauren, um, you have commented before about the fact that women especially left their jobs during the pandemic yes. to be caregivers. Um, and we all know that caregiving is a woman's work. Sorry, Tim. <laughs> Yeah, no, okay. but I mean, you heard Barbara said that she had a supportive husband. Once in a while, the men come through. <laughs> Not often, sadly, but once in a while. Um, and I mean, I just think, it, for me, 
it would have been unimaginable for my husband, Ben, to leave his job as editor of the Washington Post to take care of Quinn, even though I was a full-time reporter at the Post. Um, and so I had to quit my job. And I wouldn't have had it any other way. But the fact is that that's what happens. And so, Lauren, I'm wondering, how do we lessen the load for women? Well, we know that, especially during the time of the pandemic, this has come into a sharp focus, right? We're in this period of economic recovery across the country. We tout the record number of jobs that have been created, and yet so many people, so many women, have permanently left the workforce because we haven't solved this issue. Right? We haven't solved childcare, we haven't solved caregiving, we haven't solved paid leave. And so you may remember about a year ago, the House passed a bill called Build Back Better that offered solutions to all three. Obviously, that didn't move in the Senate, but it doesn't mean that our focus has lessened in any way in the House. We are laser focused on getting these uh, across the finish line. And so one solution that I drafted was a bill called the Job Protection Act. So we're all familiar with a legacy piece of legislation called the Family and Medical Leave Act, FMLA. And many people know about FMLA, but they don't know that half of all workers aren't eligible for it. People who work for some small businesses aren't eligible. People who just started a new job aren't eligible. You know, there's just so many different reasons why folks aren't eligible. And so while there's so much energy around having a new universal paid leave benefit, which is good, and we absolutely need that in this country, we also need to make sure that we're expanding the baseline program, FMLA, so that all workers have an opportunity to have job-protected paid leave. Because if we only have a universal program, right, then that means that, yes, you'll get paid, but then is your job going to be there when you're ready to go back to work? Well, you said that one in five Americans provide unpaid caregiving. Yes. And, you know, we're, the baby boomers are hitting old age now, and um, there's nobody to care for them. Um, so what do we do about that? Well, we certainly know that there's a lot of work that needs to be done to raise uh, the wages of our caregiving economy. Um, there's tremendous advocacy that's happening with the Domestic Workers Alliance and some of um, our labor unions in Illinois, SEIU leads a lot of this work uh, to make sure that these are jobs that pay livable wages, that folks can have careers with dignity, right? Because this is an honorable profession, taking care of people in their most vulnerable moments. You know, I'm a nurse, and so you know, I know a lot about taking care of people in times of significant medical need, but then, you know, Know, when that nurse is not either visiting the home or there's a home health care aide um, or someone who comes in uh, several times during the week with, to help with activities of daily living, oftentimes that person is not making a livable wage. Yeah. Right? We have to be able to support this workforce so that it can grow as we're facing the largest population entering into retirement and what we know about as people age, you know, acute medical needs that often come. And I, I don't think people actually understand how hard caretaking is. I, I just think they, they don't get it. The emotional strain, the right. physical strain, the economic toll that's taken. There's sacrifice that occurs at all stages of this action that's often do, done with love because you care about this family member or community member, and yet uh, they're not being supported properly. Um, Tim, you, you talk about this, this uh, uh, organization called T-Care, yeah. which is... Um, an electronic matching uh, with patients and care. How does that work? Well, it's just as I was describing earlier, it's, it's a startup. Uh, it's, a, it's an early stage venture, but it's accredited in four states already to take someone's situation. If I were caring for my dad, as I did when he had Alzheimer's, uh, I, I would be able I to... I should just say that his father and my husband were in the same Alzheimer's men's group. Yeah. It was and very they loved sweet. it. And they loved it. They, they loved it. Support. Yeah. Another example of a community creating a support system. That time, uh, a community-based organization starting a group for men who were struggling with memory loss. And um, but if you just give people a chance to log in and say, "This is what I need," and not "This is what my father needs," "This is what my brother needs," "My sister," "My child needs," "This is what I need," mm -hmm. you can immediately get uh, resources to people who often don't think they either deserve it. A lot of caregivers are so selfless, they think they don't deserve anything. They think they're pouring everything out, and they should, and they ought to, and they don't think they deserve the compassion and care. 
So I just think there's small adjustments we can make in the system. T-care is a good example. But we've got to really think about how um, the mental, I hate to say it because it sounds so abstract, the mental model here, you know, it, the Special Olympics movement is pushing this around the world, community-based supports that value children who have vulnerabilities, not just care for them, yeah. but value them. We don't value elders in our culture. We don't value the wisdom of You don't people. feel valued? <laughs> okay. Let's not get started here. <laughs> I'm supposed to be a caregiver here. You're testing me. Uh, but, I do, but I do think that, uh, you know, Representative Underwood is making a good point. There, there's legislation that can be passed. But there's a shift, you know, even our politics. I, I don't want to make this political. But our politics is so destructive of the human spirit. You know, it wears us down, makes us not care about each other, mm. uh, leads us, you know, whether it doesn't matter what part, I'm not talking about partisan politics here, I'm just saying we got to check ourselves a little bit, how we talk about one another, how we talk to one another, how we value one another, how we see the importance of treating people with dignity, even when there's vulnerabilities and, 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 and... Tim? Yeah, sorry. We have one more time for one more quick okay, question. Okay, I'm shutting up. Now. <laughs> I did not take more time than the women on this panel. I just want to be clear. <laughs> Barbara, I want to ask you the last question. What does the idea of caring for the caretaker mean to you? I mean, who takes care of you? At, um, my friends, uh, my family, and the community. So I think if we can step up and be able to support uh, the caregivers and be able to just make a simple call, how are you? Let's do a massage, let's do a nail. <laughs> uh, just little things like that really makes a big difference. Um, and, and to be able to, you know, make them feel that people care and then that they're there to support them, and especially when they need it the most. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, Tim, you were saying one last thing about, I have one more question, one last thing about dignity. Why is dignity so important? I think it's our God-given uh, gift. Uh, and I think when we lose it, it creates an enormous pain and reaction. And I think when we give it to people, it creates an enormous positive uh, cascading energy that can flow out uh, into the culture. And, um, I think what we see in people like Barbara and the, all of you who have given care is in those moments of great compassion and care, you, you treat someone with dignity, no matter how weak, no matter how vulnerable, no matter how close to their own, uh, maybe even death they are, uh, the energy released from that, from those moments, uh, can change the world. So we're just about out of time. Um, I'm sorry, we could go on for a long time. This is a great panel. Thank you all very much. Um, Barbara, Tim, and Lauren Underwood. I'm so happy you were here today. And I think we've all learned a little bit about how important caretaking is, something that most people don't think about. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post Newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. Hello, everybody. I'm Elizabeth Vargas. I'm a journalist and author, and I'm very excited to be joined today by Sharon Marcel, who is head of BCG's North America region, guiding more than 9,000 employees. It is BCG who just played that video we were just watching about the care economy, which is huge. I know we had a great panel a little bit earlier about taking care of special needs people. This is about the enormous number of people in this country, I'm sure in this room, who find themselves in the position of holding down full-time jobs, part-time jobs, maybe no job, and still having to care for people. So it's a huge issue. Today on the Washington Post website, there's an article talking about that, that last month, 100,000 Americans had to call in sick, missed work because of childcare issues. It's an all-time high. 
higher even than it was during COVID and during the pandemic. Sharon, what is the care economy, as you call it? Indeed. Well, well, thank you so much. It's great to be here with you, Elizabeth, and with all of you today. Um, so the care economy, if you think about it, it's really, there's two parts of it. One is the paid care economy. I think that's what we typically think of, people delivering elder care in nursing homes, in assisted living facilities, people delivering child care in, in child care centers. And that's big, as you described. It's a $2 trillion economy in terms of the paid piece. $2 trillion. $2 trillion. Okay. $2 trillion. And that's not the gray economy. That's actually the, the, that is the reported number in terms of the economy. There's also an unpaid portion of it. So if you think about it, many of us, yourself, might, we've discussed this, you know, have been caregivers, either for children or for parents or sometimes at, at the same time. That is another, if you value that work, which we value that work, that's another $4 trillion. So the overall care economy, just in the U.S. alone, $6 trillion with four children, uh, $4 trillion being in the unpaid portion of the economy. It's interesting that it's actually the unpaid caregivers, the people who are taking care of their kids, the people who are taking care of their parents even, because Indeed. we know that with the baby boomers, we have this generation of people who are sandwiched between the two responsibilities. That is a huger, a bigger portion Indeed. of the care economy than the paid sector, which is nannies, nurses, um, home care attendants, daycare centers, that That's sort right. of thing. That's exactly right. Two-thirds. It's two-thirds, the unpaid portion. And so what are the economics of this, and why are they getting so much worse? And why are we seeing numbers like that as far as, far as an impact on the GDP? It's a great question. So... so um, <clears throat> So you think about care and you think about it being a social issue, and it is completely a social issue, but it is a core economic issue. Um, so let me just briefly describe that. If you look at unfilled vacant jobs today in the U.S., the number's 11 million, 11 million unfilled jobs. Um, if you look at the care economy, 1.8 million jobs are unfilled. There's interrelatedness in terms of these two numbers, okay? So many of us count on paid caregivers to care for our parents, our children, or whatever that is. And so there's, when you don't have enough people in the care economy, you don't have people to, t so, so there, there's an- You can't delegate. You can't delegate, you can't delegate. Um, and so let me just frame that up in terms of supply and demand. So if you look at the supply side, I'll quote one statistic. Since COVID, one-third of child care facilities have either had a shutdown or have had to cut their care by 50% or more because they can't find enough qualified workers. What, what's happening? Are people just quitting or...? Well, much has been said about the great resignation, Elizabeth, but the truth is um, the wages are low. It's typically thought of as women's work, so only appealing to the segment of the economy. Um, another core reason is many of these people actually have to take care of their own children. So the combination of all those factors means that the supply is, is, is constrained and it's relatively low. And on the demand side, um, it's increasing. So if you think about the baby boom, generation and the aging of that generation, and more and more people living to be 80, 90, which is a great thing. Mm -hmm. but, but in that age sector, you know, they, they often need care. So, um, so there's, a, there's a demand issue, there's increasing demand, and there's a supply issue, which is constrained supply. Yeah, we were talking about that because you have two now grown children who've just left the nest. That's right. And the nest has been repopulated by your 90-year-old dad. That's right. I'm a single mom with two teenage boys, two parents in their 80s, one of whom is having some problems with dementia. Yeah. So they, it requires a, a great deal of care. And this statistic, an average employee working full-time spends an average of 30 hours a week caregiving. That's astonishing. It's incredible. It's incredible. That's right. That's what our research, I mean, we, we've... We've done research over many years, but our most recent study, which is on our website re being released today, um, of 12,000 respondents actually, actually has that data in it, which is 56% um, of employed people, people in the job market, are 
also caregivers, and the median number of hours of care they deliver is 30 hours a week. It's incredible. You do have a huge report out today, which everybody can read if they would like. It's called, you can go to on, on.bcg.com slash care. But talk about what the economics are that you discover in this report. What is it costing us to have the dwindling supply of caregivers and the demand is at least constant or growing? Yes. It's never going to shrink. Yes. We forecast that in 2030, the cost to the U.S. economy will be 290 billion dollars. So there's a cost today in terms of jobs that aren't filled and then also people who can't get back in the workforce cost today. You fast forward, there's going to be a $290 billion gap. And to dimensionalize that, um, Elizabeth, that's actually the economy um, of the state of Connecticut. It's big. That's how much money we're going to lose because of the of lost work, unfilled positions, or people who have to resign because somebody's got to take care of the kids or somebody's got to be That's home right. with mom or dad. That's exactly and right. And I can't find anybody who'll do it. That's right. That's extraordinary. That's right. Okay, so the other statistic that I was struck by from your report, for every 10 unfilled care positions, one full-time worker must give up his or her job. That's right. So there's actual data. data. That's right. For what this is translating right. to in terms of lost workforce. That's right. And we've, we've done research. Um, for everyone who loses um, paid care, they lose it because their daycare center shuts down or it no longer becomes affordable. Um, one in 10 em employees actually have to just fully remove themselves from the workforce. Even though they might not want to, even though they Absolutely. might need that job, as most people do. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and we have both the quantitative research and then a set of very compelling stories of people who've had to make these hard decisions to leave jobs that they love and that actually are contributing to them and, and, and to their families and, and to the economy. But they've had to leave. They just were presented with no other choice. And 80% of those workers who have to drop out of the workforce because of the care economy and being unable to find people to care for kid, women. 80% of, of those who drop out of the workforce are- So it's are... disproportionately on our shoulders. Yes, it is. Indeed. Okay. Let's get to what can be done about all this because we have the private sector and we have the public sector. Yes. Um, and- Let's start with the private sector. Okay. Because in many ways, that's the easier solution. Yeah. I, I think in some ways it is. So, so um, look, you know, at, at, at BCG, um, we have a great culture. We believe in, 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 in providing um, care benefits. Because you have a great that. maternity leave policy. And you know what, Elizabeth? It's good business. The truth is, it's good business. Um, so I've benefited taking care of my father, taking care of, of my two girls. And we have um, many, many employees. 56% of our employees in North America have, have at some point you know, benefited from these policies. And it's good business because um, it actually drives um, retention. So it's not just about recruitment. It drives retention. It actually encourages recruitment and loyalty. It actually drives loyalty as well. So there's a good reason, other than altruism, for the private sector to do it. So, but why haven't more companies followed that that side? I did a primetime special for ABC News 16 years ago, after the birth of my youngest child, about working mothers, and we interviewed experts who said exactly what you just said, which yes. is that by giving mothers, especially working moms, generous leave policies, flexible work schedules. All these guys, yes. they are rewarded 10 times. Yes, like are. it's paid back in dividends with employee, you know, hard work, loyalty. They'll, they'll really, they'll, it's, it's incredible. And that's been true and, and common knowledge for 15 years. Um, it, it's been true for 15 years. There has been progress. Actually, you saw a, kind of a big spike during COVID of companies offering both maternity leave and paternity leave and family leave. But that's coming down now. You see that number coming down, so you say, why I think the economics aren't understood. And that's one role that, that BCG can play. Not only can we do the research and the economic research, and, but we can help to amplify it and, and talk about it. And you know, we, we serve Fortune 200 clients. We serve the public sector. We can show up in those places and, and really share our thinking and our research to help advance this agenda. But you asked me what the private sector can do. Um, we learned about hybrid during COVID. 
pre-COVID, I barely worked from home. You know, I, I was at the client site. I was in the office. We learned during COVID, wow, we can be pretty productive at home as well. And so I think hybrid work and allowing your employees flexibility um, to work both in the op and outside of the office is thing one. Paid leave, mm. I think, is, is, is thing two. I think thing three is... Um, having some sort of option to actually fund, you know, care. So thinking about childcare on onsite childcare or some sort of benefit in terms of childcare. And then the last thing you can do is I think you can encourage your public sector leaders um, to lean in on this. Okay, you, you yeah. walked right into the public okay. sector. <laughs> Let's hear it. Okay. I've, I've, given, given we're in Washington, <laughs> D.C. with our newly uh, divided Congress, what can the public sector do? We are the only um, developed country in the world that doesn't have um, some sort of paid maternity leave. Now, we do have it in some states, so I don't, and we certainly have it offered by you know, some great companies, but it is not um, at the federal level, as you know, and I think, I think that's thing one. I think thing two is, is um, and it's complicated, but helping to support higher wages. If you look at the wages, it's hard work. You know this. You know, it's hard work to take care of elderly people. And the wages, while often, mostly often, higher than minimum wage, aren't that much higher than minimum wage. You told me it could be only like 2 or $3 more than minimum wage. That's right. These are the people we're hoping will keep my father from burning the house down. That's right. Or you know, making sure he takes that medication when he's supposed to. Those That's are right. critical, important jobs. Critically important, high skilled. And if you compare it to the retail sector or to the hotel sector, you know, sometimes those those jobs are, are more attractive than than um, than care. We've been hearing though that that's what we need to do as a country for a long time. What are your what's your optimism level that that will in fact happen? I'm optimistic. I really, I, I think in some ways it's not that hard. It, in, you know, in terms of moving the needle, and I'll, I'll talk about the private sector versus the public sector, I think when the economics and the loyalty benefits and actually the cost are better understood, I think we can help companies to, to, to move the needle. I think there's real opportunity there, and they're going to have to. I mean, the workforce, the talented workforce, is going to be constrained. We're not replacing ourselves in terms of the number of children we're having. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think companies to attract and retain the best people are gonna have to get better. better. I think when they understand the, the return on investment, even better, more quantified, I think we'll get there. I think we'll get there. There was a real hope for a while there, pre-pandemic, that the private sector was going to lead by example when it came to the public sector, that we were seeing an increase in the number of companies providing paid leave. Yes. Why is that going down? Is that because of the economic constraints I right now? Exactly. Is that because of the gig economy where more and more people are employed sort of in part-time jobs without benefits? Like, what's, what's the reason behind this? Because it's, it's the wrong way. We're it's trending the wrong way. It's the wrong way. You know, you, I get a sense when I when I talk to various CEOs, they're trying to figure how things are going to play out in terms of the economy and in terms of the workforce. What percent are going to be hybrid? What percent are going to be fully remote? Um, I think they're trying in many sectors that have been disrupted by by inflation and by supply chain issues. They're trying to figure out what they're doing next. And so I think there's an inflection point, and we've gone, Elizabeth, a bit backwards, but I think there's a real opportunity to go for it. I really do. I, I really firmly believe that. Well, you've got your work cut out for you. You've got to convince everybody out there that this is in their best interests. We're on it. Right. <laughs> Sharon Marcel, thank you so much thank for you. talking about the care. Wonderful. Once again, um, you can see the BCG report. Uh, go to the BCG website and read it all there. It's really important. It affects probably every single person in this room. So thank you so much. Thank you. And now, back to Washington Post Live. Hello, everyone. Thank you for being with us. I'm Michelle Norris, and I'm delighted to have our Surgeon General, Vivek Murthy, with us, and Elise Fox and Cynthia Germanata. Thank you for talking to us at this moment on this topic. I cannot imagine a more important topic right now and to be doing it. 
in this moment. So let's, let's have a rich and wonderful conversation. And I think we're all gonna learn a lot. Um, doctor, I wanna begin with you. First, I wanna thank you uh, on behalf of the audience, on behalf of the nation for elevating this issue. Um, you've taken it, you've put in it. If you, I hear people wanting to clap. It's okay to give him his flowers. <laughs> <laughs> because you have taken this issue and you have put it front and center in a way that we have not seen. And it's so important. Um, I'm, I'm so happy to be with you today. I appreciate that you lead with your heart and that you, you bring a, 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 a healthy dose of empathy to the work that you do. So thank you for that. Um, before I ask, your question, ask you a question, though, your advisory about youth and mental health during the pandemic illuminated some startling facts. And I think it's worth sort of marinating in this for a minute before we begin the conversation. The number of high school students who reported feelings of sadness or hopelessness increased by 40% in just one decade from 2009 to 2019. And 19% of high school students considered attempting suicide in that same decade before the pandemic. That was before the pandemic. And we've seen the effects of the isolation of the pandemic and social media also. And we're, we're now hearing more and more about something, a word that, um, I think was new or maybe even foreign to some of us, the idea of suicide ideation. Hmm. You know, that, that people who don't act on it are thinking about it. It's, it's animating their thoughts. So now that we're not done with the pandemic, but you know, perhaps on the downside, how do you think the collective trauma of the years that we experienced with the news about climate change? You know, every other week there's a new movie about the apocalypse. Hmm. Um, I, I happen to like the idea of tomorrow, so I'm sort of overserved <laughs> on, on that. Um, and social media as well. What has all of this done to our mental health collectively, but particularly for young people? Hmm. Well, I'm so glad we're having this conversation, and uh, you know, and I appreciate your kind words. But I also just want to say that you know the two extraordinary uh, women who are here on this stage, and as many others in the community have all been a part of lifting up this issue and helping us all understand what is going on, why it's so critical for us to act right now. And so a couple of things I think that are <clears throat> just important to, to recognize. One is that picking up what you were saying, Michelle, yes, the pandemic did make things worse for a lot of people. It increased a sense of isolation. It created extraordinary stress in people's lives and uncertainty as well. Um, and I don't think that we have fully processed what has gone on during the pandemic that we have at a, at a personal level and as a community, the loss we experience, the loss of loved ones, but also the loss of routine, certainty, relationships, those are profound losses. There was trauma that people experienced in their life. And we can't just switch you know, off that trauma and then go back to 2019 and the way of life then. We have to understand what happened to us. We have to be able to think through it, understand it, but also figure out how we want to make our lives different going forward. Because this is the, the bright side of tragic moments, like what we experienced in the last couple of years, which is that we are sometimes able to extract from the meaning that can actually make our post-pandemic lives better, right? Because we are wiser and more thoughtful about how we lead them. But the second thing I just want to say is about what, how it's happening before the pandemic. Because the truth is a lot of what was driving the mental health crisis among young people and more broadly in our country was happening before the pandemic. You think about the existential crises that young people were faced with, uh, thinking about climate change, racism, violence in their communities. I mean, those three enough, uh, you know, are, you know, would make somebody think, hey, is the future really as bright uh, as the past? And many young people would say that. But you also look at <clears throat> the factors that are unique to how young people are growing up today, the technology that they are growing up with, which has certainly uh, positive elements to it. And technology and social media can be a place where we come together and where we can, in the right circumstances, build community. But it also can be used in, in ways that tear us apart, that make us feel worse about ourselves, uh, that ultimately hamper and harm our relationships with one another. And that has happened to too many people. One of the most common things young people say to me about social media when I talk to them in roundtables around the country is they say three things. One, it makes me feel worse about myself. Mm. Two, it makes me feel worse about my friendships. And three, I can't get off of it. Mm. Right? Those three things are what they say. And so that's a unique information, the technology environment they're growing up in that is different from what many of us grew up with. Uh, that leads also to increased exposure to cyberbullying and, and other traumas. But the last thing I would just keep in mind is this. 
the pace of change has just dramatically increased you know, around the world. Like everything from how we think about jobs and the skills that you need for the future, uh, to the basic bargain that many people assumed we had, which was that if you work hard and you follow the rules and you're a good person, that life will work out for you. Um, how we think about everything from uh, gender to sexuality uh, to race, like so much of this has shifted and changed for people in the last few years. And change, even good change is hard, right? right? Like I know, like I, I'm a dad of a four and a six year old and I'm just cherishing this time I have with them. But I know someday, hopefully if we do our job right, they will finish school and they'll you know, leave home. And even though that's a good outcome, that they are healthy, they're happy, they're, they're leaving the nest, I know that I'm gonna be just like on the floor in tears. You when are. That happens. Yes. You absolutely are. Absolutely. <laughs> All that to say that even good change can be hard. Mm -hmm. And we are asking young people and people across society to engage and endure and navigate a degree of change that truly is unprecedented. So you put all this together, and you can understand why the stresses and strains on this generation are truly unique. And we have to understand that, and that means not only making sure that treatment is available to them, but thinking about these forces and how we mitigate them. That means that addressing climate change and violence and racism isn't just something we do because it's the right thing to do. We also do it because it's affecting mental health. Shaping technology so that it actually supports our relationships and supports our mental health is vital. Uh, just putting it out there as a grand social experiment to be visited upon uh, the entire country and the world is not always the most responsible thing to do. So we have a lot of work to do, uh, but lastly say this is why I feel encouraged because we're already starting on the path of doing it. Conversations like this are incredibly powerful. Uh, these two incredible leaders who are next to me are part of a community of leaders who are helping to push these issues to the forefront. And in the administration, we've also worked hard to invest unprecedented amounts in training more mental health providers, applying technology to improve access to care, uh, and uh, ensuring that we're investing unprecedented amounts in the prevention programs that are so desperately needed, as well as setting up 988, which is a crisis line that we need for, for help. So anyway, a lot of reasons to be hopeful but still a good lot of work that we've got to do together. Lisa and Cynthia, I'm going to bring you into this, but since you mentioned the administration, one quick question on that. Some time ago, the military made a change um, in their footing around mental health. There was a time where if you came back and you suffered from PTSD or you were um, feeling unshaky or unsure of yourself after experiencing one or two or three theaters of war, you got help if you raised your hand. And uh, sometime after the Gulf War, they changed their footing and decided that there was an assumption that anyone who would experience war was in need of some kind of help. It was just a spectrum. How much help do they need? Mm -hmm. Is that something that applies to all of us on the other side of what we have just been through? And I'm wondering if the administration would ever consider or commit to creating something like, uh, I, I don't necessarily like the word czar, but a mental health czar, someone who almost like we do in the cases of Ebola or the case of mm -hmm. a, um, economic tumult, one person who's working across agencies to actually address these issues? Yeah, it's a really good question. And, and I like the example you, you shared about the, the military. There's, you move from an opt-in to, uh, an opt-out to an opt-in, right? Where you, you provide people with a basic level of inquiry and support, and you ratchet it up for people who need more support. But you don't assume that just because somebody's not raising their hand that they don't need help. Think about college campuses. That's a place where I think we should be taking a similar approach. Should make care and support available proactively to everyone. And if they don't need much, then that's great. Then they don't need to utilize as much. But we'll find that many people have silent needs that go unaddressed. I think this gets to a critical point here, which is around how we define strength. And this is why your example of the military is actually very like, poignant. Because, <clears throat> and I say this as a doctor who was trained in programs where strength was defined in a very particular way, right? It's, in medicine and military and society, historically, we've said, well, strength is not depending on anyone else. Strength is not showing other people uh, if you're struggling. Uh, strength is being stoic, right? Strength is never being vulnerable, right? I will tell you, none of those definitions of strength feel like they really define strength. I look at the young people who are stepping up today and bravely, courageously sharing their own struggles and experiences and giving hope to other people. And I say, you know what? Vulnerability is strength. I look at the, the people who are courageously speaking out for people who are struggling, even if they themselves are doing okay. They're advocating for those who are in need. And I'm saying that courage, that courage is strength. 
I mean, look at people who are also empathetic and kind and loving in this moment. Think about the nurses and doctors and respiratory therapists who ran to the front lines to help during the pandemic. That love, that kindness, that empathy is strength. So we need to redefine strength in our culture. This is the moment to do it. And if we do that coming through this pandemic, we will have found certainly a powerful silver lining. So when you talk about young people who are telling their story as an example of strength, we have a very strong example of that right here on stage with us with Elise in creating the Sad Girls Club, in telling your story, and continuing to use social media to create community which is a positive use of social media. How has the stigma around this change, and this is really a question I'd like to hear from both of you on, when people actually use their platforms, use their voices to tell their story and create a sense of community, does it chip away at that stigma? Have you seen changes in that? Absolutely. I definitely have seen it from my own experience, just sharing my own perspective of what depression, anxiety looks like for me and for women of color. And it's honestly the hardest thing to do is to be the first one or to take that first step into being vulnerable on social media. Everyone wants to show like the highlight reel or what's perfect or what perfection looks like from their, their vantage point. But I honestly get the most beautiful and authentic commentary when I speak about the worst times that I'm having or if I'm not done up and speaking about my experiences and like what I'm struggling with. And I think we need more of that. We put a lot of pressure on the apps and say like, these apps are bad, these apps are bad, but these apps are actually tools for us to connect with each other and create our own communities. But we've used it and we've kind of shifted it to just show the perfection. Um, so I like to use my platform to not just show the good times, but also to highlight the bad times and say like, look, I know I have this platform, I have this business, and things might look like they're going okay, doing, doing really well, but I still need help, I still need support. So it shows even after years of coming out with my depression, it doesn't stop. Like you don't get a certain amount of followers or accrue this much money and it, your depression stops. And I want people to just understand that there's no stopping point, but there's also a place where we can build community and build a sustainable and long-term conversation. So I definitely see in the stigma not diminished, but it's definitely depleted and people have found their voices in Sad Girls Club. And then I also see a lot of other platforms that have blossomed that are supplying these conversations to more niche communities, the LGBTQ community, the AAPI. And I think that is so beautiful because everyone's experiences are so unique. But when you find that sweet spot, especially on social media, there are billions of people on social media and we should have a place where we feel like can be our own digital home. And we've created that through Sad Girls Club, but I love to see even the small micro communities and lifting them up to say like, look, this isn't my experience, but this may help you. And, and with vulnerability and speaking about every aspect of my life. I think it's very scary. You do speak about almost every aspect. Mm -hmm. You put it out there. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I put everything out there because it's, it's so important. I have nieces, I have a niece and I have a nephew and I have a three-year-old son and these conversations are so difficult for them to have and to be on social media and to, to not only just see, oh, your aunt is perfect or I don't want to even, I don't even like that word perfect. No one is perfect. You can have it all. Perfect is overrated. It's overrated, it's overrated. We have to, we have to really be real and, and show every parts of ourselves. And I think that's the best way to heal in community, especially if I, we can't be together. And the pandemic obviously restricted connection in person, but to have that space where you know you're seen, heard, and also you don't even have to speak, you just understand someone else's um, experiences as your own, it's, it's, it's a game changer. Cynthia, you created the Born This Way Foundation in part because of personal experience, watching your daughter struggle. And when we hear the words Born This Way, many of us think immediately of the song, you think of strength, you think of it as almost like an anthem. Mm -hmm. But behind that is a good deal of this vulnerability. And I'm wondering if you, you know, the question about what you've seen change in terms of people using their voice, if that's chipped away at the stigma, but also because you have an experience of watching a daughter go through this with, without your daughter Lady Gaga, in, in case everybody didn't know, um, go through this before we saw social media blossom and become what it is today. So could you talk about a little bit about both those things, the stigma, but also what you've seen in terms of how people can cope good and bad with the forces that we have now? Yeah, and I, I mean, Elise, I would agree with you. I think the stigma, um, it is breaking down, but it still very much exists. And uh, you know, an amazing way for young people to overcome that is when we model healthy conversations about that and are vulnerable ourselves as parents. I mean, you know, one of the biggest reasons that young people don't speak to their parents about their issues is because their parents don't share theirs. Mm -hmm. You know, we come from like the time of true grit and 
you know, to buck up and get on with it. And they also feel judged. So it's, it's really important to model healthy conversations for young people to start to break down that stigma, you know, uh, in communities. Um, with my daughter, I didn't see it coming. Um, I wish as a parent that I understood some of the warning signs between just normal biological behavior of, you know, uh, an adolescent, you know, young woman and a real problem. So I, I really didn't see that coming with her. But it was her courage and her bravery to share her story because she was so deeply impacted by it um, that allowed other young people to realize that there's hope, that there were ways to overcome it. And int most interestingly to me is there's, despite the many issues and the layers, um, Dr. Murthy, that you outlined, the layers of social issues that young people are dealing with, they're very aspirational. There's a great sense of altruism. They want to help themselves. They want to help one another. And so we're working very hard to try to equip them with the proper tools to do that in, in forms of like peer-based education so that they can support one another and talk about mental health. Because we know from our research that when they're in a crisis, they would prefer to talk to a peer. Mm -hmm. Uh, so we really believe that mental health training should be in all schools, both what is mental health and how to talk to, you know, how to talk to a peer, um, as well as embedding kindness in communities. I think these are the things that will help build supportive communities that will help tear down the stigma uh, by embedding kindness. And that can happen in many ways and shapes and, and forms. But we do know that there's this inextricable link between kindness and mental health, mm -hmm. because we know that young people that report being in kind communities are mentally healthier. Uh, they generally have higher mental health indicator scores. Um, but but uh, back to my daughter, I mean, her mental health journey started in middle school, um, and it began with loneliness, you know, bullied, excluded, um, things that took a very confident young woman and made her question her value and her self-worth. And yes, this was pre-social media, but when she reached college, I mean, it followed her from middle school to college. And when she reached college, um, there were some, some young people that started a Facebook page about her that was very, very negative. It's still out there and you know, extremely hurtful. It lives in perpetuity, right? And, and it follows you. So um, let's make America kind again. Let's make America kind yes. again. I wonder how you dealt with your own trepidation. Because when she started using her voice, were you at all worried about how vulnerable she was making herself to the outside world? As parents, you want to applaud every decision your child makes. But sometimes, secretly, you're like, oh, please, I, 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 I'm worried about how people will react. Um, sometimes it's you know because they're wearing something, or they get a tattoo, or yeah. Many of us have dealt with that. But, <laughs> but when you're talking about something as close as mental health, did you have to swallow hard and swallow your own fears when she started to show the bravery to use her own voice? I absolutely did. I know, and this is where I like to talk about intergenerational differences. We didn't talk about these issues in my home. I mean, we're all parents, and we probably have different experiences from our parents, um, but we didn't talk about those issues. So when she gained her voice, so to speak, and began talking publicly, I didn't quite understand it. Um, I kept saying to her, why are you being so private in public? Mm. Um, but I came to see how this was resonating with young people. They were healing. She was healing. Uh, they were gaining courage. They were leaving feeling empowered that there was hope uh, for them. And we saw the enormity of this issue as we traveled you know, the world. But certainly as a parent, it was very hard for me to, to hear that. Um, and I felt many, many different things. You know, My own guilt, um, I felt so badly for her, for what she went through, and you know, could I have helped her you know, even more? Um, you talked earlier, Dr. Murthy, about prevention. You know, we, we deal so often with prevention and intervention and cure, which is very important, right? Prevent and prevention and intervention. 
But there's this in-between stage. Um, I spoke to a young woman from Morocco the other day, Fatima, and she talks about the missing middle, that there are so many young people and people in general, we don't know what spectrum they're on of mental health. They're in there somewhere, but they kind of get lost. And it's not uncommon to go years, uh, sometimes 10 years without being diagnosed. Mm -hmm for mental health, that happened to my daughter. So just the importance of that, I started to realize how important it was for her to share her conversation. And one thing I'm encouraged about also as a parent, um, you know, many, many parents now are uh, seeing that their children are exhibiting signs of mental health, they're becoming more educated. Uh, and uh, very recently, a panel of experts in the US Prevention Council um, is asking for mental health screenings from all primary doctors the ages of 8 through 18. I think this is something that could help us with that missing middle um, to capture young people that are struggling and their parents aren't seeing it. They may be feeling it, but they're not understanding what they're going through. I'm interested for all three of you, and I'm going to work backwards on this because we just have a few minutes left, on your thoughts about regulating the things that we can regulate. So climate change, there are things that we can do. And actually, individual action will add up to something quite large in the decisions we make about how we travel, the cars we drive, the way that we get rid of our, our waste and recycling. Um, but there, there's other forces that are hard to deal with because someone else is at the lever. And that's certainly true for social media. So is it something that we do as a, as a nation need to think about regulating or modulating in some way? And what are the challenges around that? Because unlike, say, smoking, you don't have a body of scientific research that you can readily call upon to look at the effects of smoking on someone's health. If you're looking at the effects of something like social media on someone's health, how do we deal with something that at this point is still a little bit squishy? in trying to make decisions about how to regulate something. If I can get all three of you In terms of all of that. the social issues you mentioned, yeah, I mean, it's very challenging. Just trying to process that type of trauma that we're seeing, uh, whether we're adults or young people, is extremely challenging. It's putting added layers of stress on young people. I think it's making uh, parents less productive. Um, you know, one of the psych psychiatrists that we listen to quite often is, is um, um, Dr. Rihanna Anderson, who talks about that, how it's, it's actually exacerbating the mental health, uh, the anxiety and depression among young people, but also making their parents less productive. Mm -hmm. In terms of channeling it, if we can possibly channel that into action as a community, it sounds very simple, and I know that it's difficult, but the smallest things that we can do, whether it's gun control, whether it is embedding that kindness you know, in communities, one of the things we're doing at the foundation is uh, investing in grassroots mental health organizations that are meeting the needs of young people who are experiencing all of this trauma. It's called the Kindness in Community Fund. This past summer, we invested a million dollars in 22 organizations in local communities, visited them all, learned about them, worked with them, and we're seeing this tremendous impact that, that they're having. And we're planning to double that uh, to $2 million in the coming years. So any things we can do that are actionable to actually take steps in our communities, as small as they might be, and as difficult as they might be in the midst of our own of our own healing. At least do we need to regulate or modulate these forces in some way? And, and until we see actual any kind of um, official action, what can be done? I agree with you. I, I really focus on the, the micro changes because this is new for a lot of people. These conversations are so brand new. So I even talk about like how storytelling is the eldest form of healing. We pass down remedies, we pass down recipes, but you don't know what your grandmother's mental health was. I think having these honest and open conversations about what the generational impact of mental health in your own specific family is so helpful and it helps you feel not alone off the bat, but also encouraging those conversations within your own friend group. You have a text group with your friends, you talk about dating, you talk about going out, but have you asked your friend how their mental health is? Is there anything that's on their plate that they could, you can help take off? Or just, just adding that kindness to these yeah. normal conversations and not being so focused on what's on social media. We do have to set our own parameters with these apps that we use because 
we shouldn't be taking in all this information all the time. And there's a lot that we can't restrict ourselves from seeing. So until we can, and until it's more, better moderated, we have to do it for ourselves. But I do think having those micro conversations really helps remove the stigma, normalizes the conversation, and also spreads more awareness. Maybe within your friend group, they'll ask their families, how's your mental health? Or I noticed this type of behavior. Can we have a conversation about that? So I work on a micro level and really hoping to expand what that means for communities. There's, there's a well-known writer that I spoke to recently who said, you know, on the fact that these are addictive. There is an app that you can get on the phone which will lock you out of social media. I love and that. she does it to help with her writing. <laughs> um, and she finds that she turns it on and wants to get back to it. Oh, and she can't get back to it. But yeah. maybe we could all do that every so often yeah, to just yes. turn it all off. Mm -hmm. We don't have much time. But on the issue of regulating or modulating the forces of social media, is this something the government should be doing? I do think there's a, a role for government here, uh, particularly with two things. One, with ensuring data transparency. We need to know what the impact of these platforms are on young people. There is data there, but independent researchers tell us that they're not getting that data from companies. The second is in safety standards. Most of the things that I have in my house, uh, Michelle, are things that had to meet some safety standard to be sold to me. Mm -hmm. Yet we have these platforms that billions of people are using around the world. Uh, they do not have clear enough and strong enough safety standards. Uh, I don't think it's reasonable to expect the industry is going to police itself, grade its own homework. We shouldn't expect that or want that. That standard needs to come from the outside. But finally, I'll just say this too. Is it, is it government's role to do that? I do think government has an important role to play there because right now it's not clear who else is going to do that. Mm -hmm. um, and right now the companies are policing themselves, which is not working out in the favor of our children. But finally, just keep this in mind. If we want to address the broader youth mental health crisis, one of the critical things that we have to do is we have to stitch together this social fabric of our country again. Mm -hmm. That means we have to rebuild relationships. We have to refocus on creating healthy relationships, giving young people the skills, tools, and opportunities to do that. Because the science is incredibly clear on this now that our relationships with one another are directly connected to both our mental health and our physical health. And record numbers of young people, and people, frankly, across the age spectrum, are struggling with loneliness and isolation. And the reason that is so important is because our relationships don't just feel good. They don't just make our minds and bodies do better. But they are vehicles through which we reinforce and strengthen our values. The values that I want for my children when they grow up, like I want, you know, I want my kids, my son and daughter, to grow up in a world where people are kind to one another, where if they stumble and fall down, there'll be somebody to pick them up, and they'll do the same. I want a world where people are generous, where they look out for one another and not just themselves. And I want them to grow up in a world that's driven and fueled by love and not by fear. Those values have to be more than platitudes we put on a wall. It's our relationships that allow us to live out those values, to experience them, to recognize how powerful they are, and to be reminded by our friends uh, that these are the values that actually matter. So the bottom line is, if we want to address mental health in America, yes, we need to increase access to treatment. Yes, we have to invest in prevention programs. Yes, we have to break down the stigma. We also have to rebuild our relationships with one another. And that can start today with the steps you take to reach out to people in your life, to help strangers who may be in need, and to reinforce these core values of kindness, generosity, and love. I'm going to add one, gratitude. I think that that is something that we can all express um, to others and to ourselves to take care of our mental health. Um, and I have great gratitude for all of you and the time that you spent. Thank you so much, Dr. Murthy, Elise Fox, Cynthia Germanata. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. You can find more conversations from our Global Women's Summit by searching Washington Post Live wherever you listen. Visit WashingtonPostLive.com to register for upcoming programs.